This morning we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. No surprise there. We're going to finish this letter here soon. We're at the end of chapter 15. We just have chapter 16 to go. We should be uh, finished with that by the end of uh, January. But um, in this last section, uh, we are reminded of just uh, sort of, he's kind of pulling it all together here. But uh, one thing that Paul has done in the book of 1 Corinthians is told us and given us reasons why you cannot remove the bodily resurrection from Christianity. And understand this, we are not talking about the resurrection of Christ so much as we're talking about the resurrection of me and you. That's the question that's being addressed here. Though he does spend much time talking about and defending the doctrine of the resurrection of Christ, the primary issue in 1 Corinthians 15 has to do with their questioning that what happened to Christ would happen to us, that our bodies would be raised, that we would have a new and glorified body like Christ would have one day. There were those who wanted to take that out of Christianity. Let me show you the example in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the issue Paul is addressing in this section. Also, verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? They're sort of saying this and asking these questions with some sarcasm because they're doubters and they're, and they're skeptics of it. But they say, how are the dead raised? And what, with what kind of body do they come? That's the question. And that's what we're going to try and Paul has been seeking to address those issues in this chapter. They had a problem with Gnosticism. They had a problem with philosophers in their society, Greek philosophers who basically taught that the spirit was good and the body is evil. And the last thing you would ever want to do is to one day be reunited with your body. That's the issue. The body is a prison. True immortality is being set free from the body. You don't want any more to do with the body. And therefore, they would teach that, no, this bodily resurrection stuff you're talking about is not, not true. And many of the Corinthians were buying into that thinking. And that is why Paul takes one chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians to address a doctrinal issue. Prior to this, we have seen no other chapters. And even in 16, we've seen no other chapters where Paul talks about a doctrinal problem in the church at Corinth. It's all been behavioral issues. And now you come to chapter 15, and it's all been for 58 verses as when we get through with this, that he's talked about bodily resurrection. And that is because of the influence of Gnosticism. If you read the book of 1 John, this was a, this was a, a philosophy that had plagued the church for three centuries. It's making a comeback even today. And it has been for quite a while. But the point is, it's, it, it, it's a dualism body spirit they're separate and there can be no coming together uh, in the future in terms of a bodily resurrection for us as believers in acts chapter 17 paul was 
speaking to the philosophers at Mars Hill. You may recall that scene. And they mocked him when he talked about resurrection. And that is pretty much how the philosophers were treating the believers in Corinth as well when they would talk about resurrection. And so, Paul is saying the bodies of believers, this is what he's teaching. He's saying, and this is what you need to know, the bodies of believers will be one day raised from the dead and they will receive a glorified body that will be reunited with their souls, their spirits, who have been with the Lord. Those souls, when you die, your spirit, your soul goes to be with Christ and one day there will be a joining together of your spirit and your raised, resurrected new body. And he explains the reason for that in our section today, and that's what I want to point you to. Um, there have been two major arguments in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The first we've seen in verses 1 through 34. And Paul basically has said in that section, if you deny the resurrection, get this, if you deny the resurrection of the believer's body, if you deny that, then you must also deny the resurrection of Christ. That is how has been his argument in those first 34 verses. The reason is, folks, is because we are so united to Christ that what happens to him happens to us. If you look at what happened to Christ, you can say, well, that's going to happen to me one day. I too, my body too, will one day be raised from the grave. Notice in verse 12, I read it for you earlier. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Go down to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. You see that? Christ, a first fruit, is an indication of the harvest to come. When you take the first fruit, you're taking the very first fruits that that harvest produces, and you're taking that, and you're saying, and in and, and, and the Old Testament, you would give that to God because that was trusting him for further harvest, but it's also it was usually the best of the harvest. And secondly, and, and secondly, it was an indication and a trust for there's more to come just like that. So Christ is the first fruit of those who've been raised from the dead. Therefore, we are that fruit as believers. That has been Paul's message in that whole first section. You are in union with Christ, and what happens to Jesus happens to you. And that has been his strong argument. And if you deny the resurrection of the believer, then you have to deny the resurrection of Christ because we are that closely attached to Jesus. And he is the first fruit of what's going to happen to us. It's essential that you believe in the resurrection. See, the Corinthians believed in the resurrection. You have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus to be a Christian. But because of their denial that that's going to happen to believers, he says, well, you might as well just deny the resurrection. And so, 
in that first section of those first 34 verses, he talks about the importance of the resurrection of Christ. The, it's proof that he was God in human flesh. It's proof that his message was true. It validates that what he did on the cross, uh, God approved and God's wrath was satisfied when he raised him from the dead. If God was not satisfied, he just left Christ on the cross, he left Christ in the grave. But he raised him from the dead because the statement was, I am satisfied, my wrath has been satisfied, justification has been made possible to all who believe and trust in Jesus. And the second issue in 1 Corinthians began in verse 35. And this is a question, these were questions that the skeptics were asking, as I pointed out earlier. How are the dead raised, and what kind of body do they come? In other words, and these are good questions, and these are good questions. It's what is this resurrected body going to look like, and how does it even work? How does it even work? Uh, basically, how does a decomposed body, how does a decomposed body get put back together? You see, they had a wrong understanding. They basically saw it this way. The body that goes into the grave, this is what they would say, the body that goes into the grave comes out, the same as what went into the grave. That was their wrong thinking. They would, they would say that what, what you put in is what comes out. And all they could think about was everybody knows that when a body goes into a grave, it decays, it's decomposed, it even turns ugly. How in the world, they would say, how in the world do you get a resurrected, glorified body out of that? Why would you even want that to happen? What is this body all about? What is this resurrected body all about? And that would be the first question I would look at. You got two questions there in verse 35. I took some time last time we met a few, about a month ago on this. What kind of body is it that we're even talking about? Uh, you know, people have the same question today, by the way. People say, well, what, do you, what happens to people who are cremated? Somebody that's cremated, how, do you, how, do you, how does that get put back together? Or somebody that dies at sea, or, or somebody that's drowned or eaten by sharks, or somebody that's blown up in a, a bomb explosion, or somebody that's burned up in a fire. How in the world does this happen to get that body back together? That's the question they're asking, and that's the question you're asking. It's really good questions. And that's what Paul addresses in this last section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says in verse 36, you fool. He calls them fool because of the sarcasm and tone with which they're asking the question. He is saying to them, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. He's correcting their foolish thinking to, to, in two ways. One, you do not understand God's power to raise the dead, and secondly, you don't understand that what goes into the ground is not identical to what comes out of the ground. That is what he is teaching in verses 36 and following. Basically, you put a seed in the ground, but it does not look anything like what, comes, what grows out of the ground. That was the point we made a few weeks ago. You put an acorn in the ground. Who in the world would think that acorn would become an oak tree, right? That's the, that's the argument that Paul does there. Look at the analogy of nature, he says. 
You, you, you're asking, what is the nature of this resurrected body? Well, don't think of it. It's going to be the same thing that went into the ground that's going to come out. No, you, you have a, a poor understanding of the power of God, that he is able to bring forth whatever kind of body he wants to bring forth. But it starts with the body going into the ground. It starts with the body dying first so they can be raised up to a new life, a resurrected, glorified body. Verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. That's how nature works. You put, in a, you, get a, you put in a seed that produces a flower. You put in a seed that produces a corn stalk. You put in a seed that produces wheat or whatever. It, does, it looks nothing like, the fruit looks nothing like what's put down into the ground. And then go down to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. You, sown, you put a perishable body in the ground, it's raised an imperishable body. You see that in verse 42? That's the same thing. The way nature works is the very same thing. You put this perishable body that's died, you put it in the ground, and out comes an imperishable body. That's the argument that Paul is making to the Corinthians. A body that no longer ages, a body that no longer gets sick, a body that no longer gets... Um, pain or subject to deterioration or any of those things it's imperishable that's not what's sown into the ground but that's what's going to come out one day if you're a believer that's what's going to come out one day verse 43 you sit sown in dishonor it's raised in glory it's sown in weakness it's raised in power our bodies one day will be powerful they're right now they're weak we're right now we're subject to all kinds of limitations we need food to survive. We need sleep and water and protection from the elements. He said, but one day we'll have bodies that don't need all of that. A body that will have no limitations. Look at verse 45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. He compares Adam and Christ. And basically what he's going to do now is he's going to say this. He's going to say, you've got this Adam-like body now. He says... What you're going to get is a Christ-like body in the future. Adam had a body that was suitable for Eden. Adam had a body that was suitable for this world. You and I right now have a body that's suitable for now. But there's coming a time we'll be in the kingdom of God, and we need a body that's suitable for that kingdom. That's the argument that he goes on to make here in 45 and following. This last Adam became a life-giving spirit, he says. Adam was a prototype uh, of what of the bodies that we will one day have. But Christ, now it's an Adam-like body and in the future will be a Christ-like body. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The spiritual comes first. The better comes from the inferior. That's his point there. The better comes from, contrary to what the skeptics say, better is going to come from the inferior. Verse 47, the first man is from the earth. It's earthy. The second man is from heaven. Adam could be, God can make the body that he gave Adam from the dust. Imagine what God can do with the spiritual body that's perfect. Are you getting this? Are you seeing how, are you seeing how Paul is trying to refute the wrong thinking about the bodily resurrection of believers? 
That, that is not possible, they would say. Verse 48, as is the earthy, so also those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. You know, if you want to know what the resurrection body is going to look like, look at Jesus. Just think about Jesus in those post-resurrection appearances he made. Think about the fact that he was recognizable. They could recognize him. He was able to hide himself from them being rec- and being recognized, but he was recognizable. They knew that was Jesus. He was able to eat. I don't know that he had to eat, but he did. He was able to do that. I don't know that he, he was touchable. He was not a phantom body. He, was actual, he had an actual body. He could be touched. He was able to breathe. John 20, 22 says that he breathed on the disciples. He was not restricted by matter or space. He, he could go to various locations. There was no spatial limitations on him. And that's the point that he, Paul makes. If it happened to Jesus, it will one day happen to us. And this is so hard to imagine. I understand that living in the day and time we are and just living in the, the mundaneness of our lives now and all these things and to think, but this is how the future, Paul says, is for every believer. A new body, imperishable, not weak anymore, not prone to sickness and disease and all the limitations of life. Golly, I look forward to that day when we'll have this new body. Verse 47 Excuse me, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. One day I will have the body I need for heaven. And here's a great verse that summarizes it all. You can turn there or just listen to me read it. Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, 321. Listen to this. Christ, who will transform the body, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. See that? That summarizes everything Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 15. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's going to happen one day. Paul says it in Philippians right there. Philippians 3.21. Mark it down. Cross-reference for 1 Corinthians 15. Here's another one. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I share this at funerals all the time. For we know that this earthly tent, we live in an earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this house we groan. We want out. We want a new body, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. See, you hear those things. It's the same message throughout the New Testament. It's not just chapter 15. Consistent message by the Apostle Paul. We will be transformed in these bodies. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see him just as he is. We're not going to be floating spirits, nothing like that. Our bodies are going to be real bodies suited for the spiritual realm. That's the point that he's making. Not this physical realm. We need bodies. We can't take these bodies into that realm, the spiritual realm. They're fine for this realm. They're fine for the Adamic realm, but they're not fine for the Christ realm. 
question number, second question that he asked in verse 35, how are the dead raised? And that's the question they want to know. How is this going to happen? How do you take a dead, contaminated body? How does all this happen? What's, going to, what's the mechanics behind this process? Verse 35, that's what they're asking. How are the dead raised? That's what he's going to answer now in these next questions. And that's a good question. How does this work? How is he going to change my body at the resurrection? What is going to happen in this process? And that's verses 50 through 58. And in the process of telling them how this is going to happen, he's also going to mention that the resurrection of the body has the ultimate triumph over death. Death is your worst enemy. Death is our horrible enemy to all of us, to humanity. But this resurrection truth that he shares in these verses says that this will triumph over death. We will die no more. Let me show you this. What to expect. This tells me what to expect. Notice in verse 50. Now, he gives several important truths here. But he says, now I say this, brethren that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I just got through saying that. Flesh and blood. These bodies you got right now cannot go into the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The whole reason I need an imperishable body is because that's what's required and suitable for the kingdom of God. Our bodies are fine for this planet. They're not fine for heaven. I'll need a new body for that. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The word behold is a word that gets your attention. It's a good attention-getting word. Behold. Take note of this, he's saying. I'm about to tell you something very significant. That's what he means by the word behold. Uh, Hey, look. Hey, look. Uh, You want to know how this is going to happen? You want to know the mechanics of this? He says, listen. He uses the word mystery. I tell you a mystery. It doesn't mean it's mysterious. Sometimes people think, oh, this is mysterious. This isn't mysterious. Mystery simply means this. It's something that wasn't revealed before. It's something that was not revealed. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. The Old Old Testament saints did not know about this. This is New Testament revelation. This is something new I'm bringing to you that has not been taught before. They knew about resurrection in the Old Testament. They didn't know the details of it. This is new. He says this. The truth that I'm revealing to you that we will not all sleep. The word sleep is the word we've said many times before. It talks about the body has died. It talks about death. Keep in mind, Paul is talking to believers here now, okay? He's talking to believers. He's saying we will not all die. We will not all die. Um, but we will all be changed. Sleep is the term for death and this He's saying there's, it's, very, it's possible there will be Christians who will be changed but not die. There, it's possible there will be Christians who are alive when this change comes about, therefore they won't be raised from the dead. 
There will be Christians who have already died and they're already asleep. And there will be Christians who are still alive when this all will be changed happens. But all, all believers will be changed. All believers will receive bodies that are perfectly suited for eternity. That is Paul's saying, Paul's, God's promise, Paul's saying that this is something that is going to happen, this is a mystery, this is uh, something you need to take note of. Those believers who are alive when the Lord returns aren't going to die, like I said before, they will be changed, but they will not be raised from the dead because they're not dead. Others will. But nobody is going to miss out. No Christian is going to miss out on getting a glorified, resurrected body because God is going to change them at the time when he comes. And this event that he's describing here is the gathering of the church. I believe it's the rapture of the church. I believe it's an event that happens prior to the seven-year tribulation that we're going to have here on the earth. The book of Revelation describes the events of that horrible time here on the earth. I believe this is an event that precedes even the second coming of Jesus as brought up in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19 talks about Jesus coming to the earth in judgment, touching down at the Mount of Olives. That is not what we're describing here in these verses. We're talking about an event that will precede all of that. We're talking about a time when believers will be resurrected from the dead or changed. Turn to John 14 for a moment. John 14, verses 2 and 3. Jesus spoke of this in John 14, verses 2 to 3. He says in verse 2 of John 14, this is before he's about to leave to go to heaven prior to his crucifixion. And Jesus says in verse 2 of John chapter 14, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Folks, I don't believe you can say that he is talking about his return to earth, the second coming, in these verses. I just don't see that Revelation 19 being described here at all. He's not coming as a judge, he's saying. He's simply coming to bring believers to himself, to take them to the place that he has prepared for them, back to his Father's house in heaven. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Looking in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says this, 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have already died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, he's saying there's coming a time when Christ will bring the souls of those who have already fallen asleep to be reunited with the bodies, the resurrected bodies of those believers, 
And also, he will take those who are alive at that time and change them, the very same thing he is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I believe John 14 and 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 all describe this gathering of the church, gathering of believers, called the rapture of the church. Verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we'll always be with the Lord, and taken to those places that he has prepared for us, and will always be with the Lord. This is not second coming, Revelation 19 language. It takes place when resurrection takes place. This is my resurrection and your resurrection as believers in Christ. This is the time when we will be changed. Um, every, every believer will receive a brand new, glorified, resurrected body that will allow him to live in heaven. That is what Paul is teaching. You want to know the mechanics of it? He's saying this is how. This is how it's going to happen. He's going to come and he's going to gather. He's going to take you to catch you up to himself. When you die, your soul goes to heaven. Your soul goes to be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be with Christ. At this resurrection, he will bring you, your spirit, your soul to your resurrected body. And for those who are still alive, you will receive, you will be changed and receive a new body. We'll all be transported to heaven. New resurrected bodies, perfectly suited for heaven. Verse 52, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. More about how this is going to happen. More details about how this is going to happen. Verse 52, it'll be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. There you go. It will happen quickly. The twinkling of an eye, the word moment, a Thomas, it's the word for Adam, the smallest amount of time possible. That's how quick it will be. The fraction of a moment Paul says, twinkling of an eye, blinking of an eye. It will be that quick. It's not some long, drawn-out thing. It happens that quick. You will not have time to get your life in order. You will not have time. You better be ready. You better be ready. There is nothing that has to happen on God's prophetic calendar for this event to take place. It can happen before we leave here today. It can happen anytime. You will not have the opportunity to straighten your life out and, and make yourself, get yourself right with God. No, it will be that quick. It will be that quick. And so are you right with God? That's the question that's always before you. You do not know what a moment bring, may bring forth. You, may not, you will not have a chance once it starts. It's a split second. And when will this happen? You see in this verse, last trumpet. Um, so many people have questions about what that might be. I do not think it's the last trumpet or the trumpets of revelation at all. Those trumpets are about judgment. This is not about judgment. This has nothing to do with judgment. 
Those trumpets in Revelation refer to judgments that God is going to be pouring out on the earth. This possibly could be just a, a call, a trumpet call. This could be something Paul is thinking maybe of the Roman military where they would have three trumpet callings. The first trumpet was just to kind of get your attention, get ready. The second trumpet was uh, line up. And the third trumpet was move out. It could simply be that. We don't know for sure. I'm just saying that could be in Paul's mind when he uses the word trumpet. We move out. Come to meet the Lord in the air. And the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we who are alive will be changed. This perishable body will become imperishable. And so all believers, dead and living, will have these new glorified bodies and dead will be reunited with their souls. Remember when Stephen was being stoned and they were throwing rocks at him and killing, and they eventually killed him? And he, what did he say? He said, Lord, receive my spirit. Remember that? And remember when on the cross, the thief on the cross, and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, what happened? Their bodies went into a grave. Their spirits went to paradise. Their spirit went to the presence of the Lord in Stephen's case. And what's going to happen one day? God, Christ is going to bring those spirits back to be reunited with a glorified Stephen and a glorified thief on the cross. That's what this is teaching. It's, it's a new age, no doubt about it. It's a new life, no doubt about it. It's going to happen, and people are going to wonder, what happened to you? And I'm sure there's going to be a virus to explain it or something. But the point is, your loved ones and people you know and others who are unbelievers are going to be left here, and they're going to wonder what happened. It's going to be that quick. And we don't know. The day it will happen, but there's nothing on God's prophetic calendar that says it can't happen today. But we will, the point that Paul has made throughout this entire chapter and section of this book has been, now we have bodies that are suited for eternity. And Jesus says, where I am, you will be there also. For verse 53, for perishable must put on imperishable, mortal must put on immortality. What a day that will be. What a day that will be. Secondly, and I just close with this this morning, look at uh, the last, look at verse 54. Uh, this is putting it all to, putting death to death. That's what this is about. Putting death to death. When this imperishable, when this, when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, in Isaiah 25.8, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul says on that day when we receive that body, that new glorified body that will never die, at that very moment, death will be completely conquered. It's over for death. When this happens, Paul says, that is when death is done. The death of death. It'll be the final overthrow of what Job calls the kingdom of terror, death. You think of this. If you're a believer, you know that 
The death of Christ has set us free from the fear of death. Right? We, we don't fear death. We no longer fear death because we don't fear hell and judgment. That's why people, I think, deep down who are not Christians fear death so much because they know they are not ready to meet their Creator. They know they're not ready to meet a holy God. I think deep down they know that and they fear death so much because of that. They don't know what's on the other side. Oh, they hope, they hope for something that's opposite of what we're teaching. They hope for that. But the reality is they fear it so badly and so much. As a believer, death is a terrible enemy to me and to you, no doubt. It's horrible. It separates your family. It, separate, it interrupts life events. It's a horrible enemy to every one of us. It truly is our enemy. When a loved one dies, you grieve, and you should grieve, and you, oh, we all grieve. Christian, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, you grieve. That's normal, and that is to be expected. Paul says we grieve, but not as those who have no hope, but we grieve. We still grieve because death is such an enemy. It's such an interruption. It's such, it, it, it's such a horrible thing for humanity to have to deal with death. It disrupts your close relationships and brings anguish. And everybody in this room has felt that anguish. I can remember being in the hospital when my mother was dying. And I remember thinking how much I hate the fact that she's going to die. I hate death. You know, we've all felt that. We've all felt that. But Paul is saying there's coming a day when that anguish will be over. That's what he's saying in these verses. Death will be swallowed up in victory. When the grave gives up those who have died in the Lord and they receive their resurrected bodies, they will never die again. When you and I are changed in our glorified bodies, we will live forever. We will never face death again. Death is swallowed up in victory. The thing that causes us so much grief and anguish in these perishable bodies, in these mortal bodies, in these dishonoring bodies, all those things that Paul says about it in 1 Corinthians 15, all those things, he says death will no longer be an issue for us any longer. And he's so overjoyed with that thought in Milk in verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's almost like he's taunting death. He's taunting death. He's saying this resurrection truth about us as believers. He, he's, basically, he's, just, he's basically saying uh, because of that, you have no victory anymore. In fact, where is your sting now? You've stung so many. You have stung so many people. Where is your sting now? He paints this picture of a, some monster or horrible poisonous insect that has this stinger that's been killing people for ages. And he says, now it's lost its power. It can't sting anybody anymore. The stinger's gone. The stinger's been removed. And the reason the stinger can't sting you anymore, verse 56, the sting of sin is death and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep this in mind. 
if death would have no power over us if it weren't for sin. The wages of sin is death. The reason we die is because of sin. And sin is a problem. Sin is a problem because it brings about death and we stand condemned before a holy God because when he holds his law up against us, that's like a mirror. He holds his law up against us and we're all spiritual criminals. We've all broken it, and we've broken it over and over and over again. We're spiritual criminals. When God holds his law up to us, the law cries out, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And it's because of sin that you die. The wages of sin is death. And the reason victory, death has been swallowed up in victory, is because of Christ. Here's what happened. Christ fulfilled the law of God completely and totally. Christ fulfilled every, every jot and tittle of God's law completely. And you know what happened? He took the stinger for us. He took the stinger for us. The stinger was injected into Christ in our place. That's the victory we have now in Christ. He did it for us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He took the stinger for you. Sin has been removed. The sting has been removed. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So when he hung on the cross, he was just stung. He was stung to death for us. And so our resurrected bodies will live forever because they're designed to live forever. These bodies are not designed to live forever. That's the first thing he's taught us in all of this. And the second thing, and what happens to him will happen to us. There's another truth that's been taught to us over and over in this chapter. At the resurrection, death will be defeated. And finally, it demands a response, and that's how he ends 1558. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in, the vain, not in vain in the Lord. Therefore means everything that because of everything I have just said to you, uh, this hope that has been given to you, these promises, these truths that have been given to you, he's basically now saying, live the, be steadfast, be steadfast, and out of a heart of gratitude, out of a total abandonment, serve the Lord, basically... This life is not all there is. This life is not the, our ultimate hope. Give yourself, give your resources, give your time in serving the Lord. Don't live for yourselves, he is saying, but always abounding. Abounding means doing more than is required. That's what abounding is. Don't just check off the box that you came to church on Sunday. Oh, I did that. Serve the Lord. That's what he's saying, abounding. Don't just check off the box. I gave some money. Don't just check off the abounding more than is required. You see, this truth is meant to motivate us. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to excite us that we have a hope. All this truth is there to say, don't get wrapped up in you, but get wrapped up in Christ for what he has done for us. 
Man, I'll tell you, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Jesus, you have condemned stamped on you right now. You have no hope. You can't save yourself. You can't make yourself right with God. You can't remove your sin. You can't clean up your life. Only Christ can do that. You need Him. You need to put your trust in Him. You need to believe in Him. You need to embrace Him. But if that's you, I pray you'll cry out to Him. You'll cry out to Him. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my rebellion. Forgive me for breaking your law. Forgiving me for being a spiritual uh, criminal all these years. Thank you for satisfying God's holiness in my place. Thank you for satisfying God's wrath in my place. I believe and put my trust and faith in you. That's our victory. That's our hope. We thank him for that, don't we? Father, thank you this morning for these truths. Thank you, God, for the victory you have in Christ. Thank you, Father, for what we have forward to look forward to. Thank you that one day we'll get out of these bodies that cause us so many problems, so many pains, so many hurts, and get a new body that's ready for eternity with you. Thank you, God, that it's going to happen in a moment. It's going to be an instant change. We'll be taken up into your presence, God. We want to go to that place you prepared for us. We want this earthly tent to be torn down and that building from God to be given to us. Father, we are so thankful for the hope we have because of Jesus. That death does not have a sting to us anymore. We have victory over death. Death has been swallowed up in that victory. That though we grieve now in this life, there's coming a day we will grieve no more. We just thank you, Father, for that hope. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.